and let's turn on our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. On Sunday morning, we've begun a new series in 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians called Christian Living in a Pagan World. That's the world that we live in. And we come this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, men are coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. It's always best to hear the Word of God, but also to read along with your own eyes. So just wave to them. They'll get a Bible into your hands. And then please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everybody to own a Bible. God wants everyone to own a Bible and to read it. Make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. We talked about division and contention last week, and I failed in the course of my sermon to uh, let folks know I wasn't addressing any kind of local situation, second service. I did first service, and um, we're just heading right through the Scriptures. So it wasn't a pastor up here taking pot shots at anyone. Of course, I didn't take any pot shots in the sermon at all, but um, that's the wonderful thing about heading through the Word of God. You hit anything and everything, and... uh, You know, whatever happens, happens. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness, admittedly, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us this morning. As we live for you and walk with you and shine for you and have a desire to make a difference in this pagan world that we live in, Lord. And we need your instruction and your perspective. What do, how do you look at things? How do you see things, Lord? We, our whole week is just dominated by how men and women see things and the wisdom of men and it gets us nowhere. How do you see things, Lord? What do we need to hear from you and from your word? And we pray that you would speak to us, Lord, through your word this morning, the voice of your Holy Spirit. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Being a a Greek city in the ancient world, Corinth was a city that was uh, gaga or crazy over the intellectual pursuit of wisdom. And intellectualism 
the exercise of the intellect, the clash of intellects in uh, public settings, in public discussions, and in public debates. In Corinth, as was the case in all Greek, all of Greece and Greek culture, it was followed with tremendous interest. It was followed with the same kind of interest and the same kind of fervency with which many people in our culture follow their favorite uh, sports teams. And because it isn't so in our culture, sometimes we just have to stop and remember what was true of, of, of the culture that Paul was writing to. But concerning Corinth as a part of Greece and a part of Greek culture, philosophers and orders, they were the rock stars of the ancient world for Greeks. They were the star athletes of the ancient world in terms of a thinking people or a people concerned about intelligence. And as a result, because Corinth was a Greek city, they shared the same kind of characteristics of their Greek brethren, what other people thought of them as Greeks or as a citizen of Corinth, and then carrying on into their Christian life, whatever other people thought of them and their intelligence was very, very important to the average Greek. No one wanted to be thought of as a dummy. Nobody ever does. But you really didn't want to in Greece. Nobody wanted to be thought of as a simpleton. And yet this is the environment that God had called these Greek Christians in Corinth to share the gospel in, to share about Christ, to share about uh, their own uh, faith in Christ to the citizens of Corinth. Now, you fast forward 2,000 years to our day, and it would be the equivalent of Christians sharing their faith in many public schools or in university or in institutions of uh, higher education in the United States of America. Not always, but very, very often in those kind of environments today, and probably almost always, a Christian is viewed as ignorant, as someone who is stunted as it relates to their intelligence, that they have... Uh, inflicted that upon themselves by virtue of believing in God and trusting in Christ. And very often in such environments, a Christian is considered not only to be a simpleton, but whether spoken out loud or hidden in the human heart, to be a fool. And many of you have experienced this kind of an experience for yourself firsthand. Well, whatever we've experienced and kind of the, uh, by being viewed by the intelligentsia of our culture, for a Greek in ancient Greece, you multiply the stigma, you multiply the pressure, multiply it times ten, multiply it times a hundred, and you get a feel for what these Christians were up against in that culture. Well, in our Bible passage, the Holy Spirit knowing that 
none of us likes to be thought of as dummies or simpletons. He tells, told the church at Corinth and tells us how we are to successfully navigate all of this in a pagan culture and how it is that we are to minister in those kind of environments effectively so that we would not be intimidated by the rejection of Christ, either by Jews, that is, religious leaders in the world, or by the so-called intellectuals of our age, secular man. Because when God looks at all of that, the Bible says that everything is open and naked before him with whom we have to do. He's not in awe of religious leaders. He's not in awe of intellectuals. He's not in awe of anyone. And he sees right through the heart and the life of every single person. And he knows that the rejection of his son in his gospel is baseless. No matter how smart that person is or no matter how religious that person is. And God knows that his gospel exceeds any demonstration of wisdom or power that men might demand if they would only take the time to examine the gospel with an open heart and with an open mind. And I want to begin by speaking about the gospel and how it is that God has chosen to save mankind The word gospel means good news. In fact, it's stronger than that. The word gospel means great news. And the gospel is great news. And what the gospel is, is it speaks of the way that God has provided for sinful man to be forgiven of our sins. And then to enter into a relationship with God Almighty who created us. And to be in that relationship forever and ever and ever. And perhaps the greatest definition of the gospel in all of the Bible is found in chapter 15 of this very same letter. Where Paul wrote, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received and in which you stand by which also you were saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then here it is, his description of the gospel. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scripture. And the gospel... God's good news to sinful man concerning salvation is made up of three parts. Number one, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins in order to pay the full and satisfying payment that was required for the forgiveness of sins. Number two, that he was buried. And then number three, that he rose again on the third day just as the Old Testament prophecies had prophesied the Messiah would do. During Jesus' public ministry, he had declared that he would provide mankind with salvation and the forgiveness of sins. 
that his, he would lay his life down as a full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. He said the Son of Man did not come into the world to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. Now, when the hour of his crucifixion came, Jesus died to pay the price for the forgiveness of our sins. But how in the world are we supposed to know as human beings that his sacrifice on the cross was acceptable to God? That he really was who he said he was and then what he said was true. And God's answer to all of that is the resurrection. The resurrection is the evidence that the Father accepted the perfect sacrifice of His Son for the forgiveness of our sins. Isn't that wonderful? I think that it is wonderful. And the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God's way of confirming to us that our faith in Jesus Christ is well-placed. And that when a person comes to God and says something like this to God in prayer, God, I believe that I am a sinner. I believe that I've been less than perfect all of my life. I also believe that my sin has separated me from a relationship with you, the relationship that I've been created for and the relationship without which nothing in life will make sense. But I also believe that you loved me so much that you sent your Son into the world to die that death upon the cross, that a whosoever like me could put my trust and my faith in him and gain everlasting life. And so this morning, Lord, I choose to put my faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins, for an to begin an everlasting relationship with you. And when a person says something like that to God, the greatest miracle that can happen in a human life occurs, and that is God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit comes into that individual person's life, and that person is now born again by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said we needed to be born again. We've been born physically... But we were born dead spiritually when we were born physically. So we need a spiritual birth. And by putting our faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, we receive that spiritual birth and now have the capacity for relationship with God. And all of it is a free gift from God because we could never earn it. And the salvation that Jesus provides us with is a salvation that absolutely overwhelms and dominates our past and our present and our future. Concerning our past, it provides us with a complete forgiveness of every sin we've ever committed. I can't change my past. I can't change my sin. What I need is forgiveness, and God provides me with that forgiveness as He does with every Christian and anyone who would become a Christian. Concerning sin in the present tense and salvation in the present tense, 
By putting my faith in Christ, He provides me with a will and a power to live a completely different life. God doesn't just forgive me of my sins and then say, now today you have to live the life you've always lived in the bondage of sin on and on and on until you one day go into heaven. The Holy Spirit comes into our life and gives us the ability to live an entirely different kind of life. And this salvation reaches all the way out into our futures when one day we will be in that heavenly scene and standing before that throne and at that point in time delivered from ever coming into contact with sin ever again for the rest of eternity. I want us to notice in this passage and specifically in verses 22 and 23 man's general response to God's offer of the gospel uh, to us. He said concerning the Jews, characteristically, the Jews request a sign. Their attitude was kind of show me. They, uh, they, that they would believe something if some miracle were shown to them to affirm that truth. The Jews in the ancient world were very different from the Greeks or from the Gentiles. The Jews were not interested in the pursuit of uh, wisdom. They didn't get lost in their heads in some kind of uh, intellectualism. And the reason that they didn't give themselves to uh, intellectualism, so to speak, or into the pursuit of wisdom in the way that the Greeks did is because in their mind, and rightfully so, they, they already possessed the greatest wisdom that could be possessed in human history at the time, and that was the Old Testament, the Law and the Prophets. So they weren't on a search for the meaning of life. They weren't on a search for the purpose of life. They weren't on the search for kind of dotting I's and crossing T's and intellectual discussion about do you put your right shoe on first or your left shoe on first all the way to the big questions in life. Those things were all answered for them in the Word of God. For the Jew, it was necessary that a message be confirmed by a physical miracle of some sort. And this is why the Jewish religious leaders were constantly coming to Jesus and asking him for a miracle, asking him for some kind of of a sign in order to confirm his claim to be the Messiah and to be the very Son of God. It wasn't like they didn't have any signs. Jesus had filled the whole land of Israel with miracles top to bottom, left to right for three and a half years. You couldn't go into any part of Israel where he hadn't raised somebody from the dead or he hadn't restored sight to the blind. He hadn't given deaf ears the ability to hear once again. Cleansing of the lepers on and on. John writes in his gospel that if they recorded everything that Jesus said and do uh, did in the course of those three and a half years, the whole world couldn't contain the books that could be written on it. There were changed lives all over the landscape of Israel, and yet they would continue to come to him and ask him for some kind of a sign or some kind of a miracle. All, And so Jesus performed just nonstop series of signs and wonders and miracles, and all of them were accomplished by Jesus for the purpose 
of confirming his claim to be the Savior of the world and the Son of God. Jesus didn't just come and do miracles or signs and wonders to say, where it's the uh, Bullwinkle and Rocky show. Rocky, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. He didn't do all of these miracles just to say, I just want to show you what I can do and you can't do, so you'll be in awe of me. The Bible refers to the miracles of Jesus and the miracles of the apostles in the book of Acts that are referred to as signs and wonders. They were deliberate. They were deliberately, specifically chosen things that Jesus did to communicate something to mankind about himself, signs and wonders. What is a wonder? A wonder is when something happens that stops us dead in our tracks and it makes us think about what we've just seen. I've never seen that before. That's amazing. I'm going to stop everything that I'm doing, everything that I'm thinking. I'm going to give that my full attention. That's a wonder. And that's what a wonder is intended to do. When Jesus broke into human history and did what he did over and over and over again, it was to try and get people to stop in the everyday of their life, watch what they had just seen him do, and to realize there's another kingdom that's in our midst. Nobody does this kind of thing. I've never seen that in my life. That, what, that which he has just done causes me to wonder about him. It stops me in my tracks and it makes me think about him. And that's what a wonder is intended to do. And that's what the miracles are intended to do as a person today reads of the life of Jesus in the Gospels, where a person stops and begins to wonder about such a life as the life of Christ. What is a sign? Well, we're, our lives are dominated by signs. We couldn't get by without signs. And signs are the means by which we get from one place in life to another place in life. Let's say in a car, I'm over here and I want to get to some place in the Bay Area or some place in Wyoming or wherever it might be. What do we do? We follow the signs. And if we follow the signs and obey them, those signs will deliver us safely to our destination. And what is true of physical signs is true of spiritual signs. Here we are over here. Jesus does the signs that he does. And if we will look at those signs and see where they lead, they will always lead to a faith in Christ as the Son of God and as our Savior and bring us spiritually safely to the end of our journey and the end of our search. That was the meaning of the miracles and all of the signs and all of the wonders. They weren't just mere demonstrations of power. Now, late in Jesus' public ministry, he did yield one more time to the request of the Jewish religious leaders for a sign. And they wanted another sign from him to prove that he was the Messiah and that he was the Son of God. And Jesus said to them, a wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given unto it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. 
And as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Speaking of his death, his burial, and his resurrection, he would be crucified, he would die, and only remain in that condition for three days before he would be resurrected from the dead. Now, Why would Jesus call a generation which seeks to build their faith supremely upon signs wicked and adulterous? He did so, first of all, to them because they already had enough miracles that he had done to testify to the truthfulness of his claims. And second, because they already possessed the single greatest evidence for his claim to be the Son of God and the Messiah, and that was the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, where from one end to the other, God gives a prophetic description of the Savior that he would send into the world so that when he came, everyone would recognize the description, recognize Jesus for who he is, and then put their trust in him for salvation. And God's description was a very complete description. The the Messiah would come into the world. He'd be born of a virgin, as Jesus was. He would be born in Bethlehem, as Jesus was. That he would be born of the bloodline of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, even as Jesus was. That he would be divine, Jesus, even as Jesus was and is, and so forth. The Jews stumbled at the idea of Jesus being the promised Messiah, because of the crucifixion. They clung very tightly to Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23, which declared that anyone who hung on a tree, cross, means of death, that anyone who hung on a tree is accursed of God. And they felt that Jesus' crucifixion disqualified him to be the Messiah on the basis of the Scriptures. But what they failed to do was to take in the whole counsel of God on that issue of the death of the Messiah. They failed to then go to Isaiah chapter 53 and to Psalm 21 and other places in the, New Te- in the Old Testament which clearly revealed that when the Messiah came into the world, he would die a terrible death by crucifixion, but not for his own sins, but that the iniquity of us were laid upon him. And if they had just put together the revelation of Deuteronomy and Isaiah and Psalms alone, they would have come to realize that Jesus needed to die on the cross, not for his own sins, but to bear the curse that our sins deserved so that we could be born again. That yes, Jesus was cursed on that tree, but not with his own sin but because he who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Yes, it was true, cursed is anyone who dies on the tree, and it was true of Jesus, but he was not cursed because of his own sin, but because of our sin. 
All of it is the Holy Spirit puts all of it together and then speaks to the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, miracles, they are wonderful as far as, as they operate as signs and wonders in people's lives, but they are never to become the foundation of a person's faith in Jesus for salvation. The Word of God alone is to have that place. And that's why Jesus, in his dealing with the Jews, he dealt with them in a way that he wanted their faith to be based upon the fulfillment of Scriptures. When Paul went into city after city after city, went into the, on these missionary journeys, went into the synagogues, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He spoke to them from the law and the prophets, and he wanted them to have a biblical God-given basis for their faith in Jesus as the Christ. And that's what Paul was trying to accomplish. And the reason that both Jesus and Paul did that is because miracles alone are not the best reason for faith in Christ. They had three and a half years of miracles during Jesus' public ministry. And what did it do? It just made them want more. This is the folly, if you sit here today, this is the folly of ever finding yourself in a pinch and you don't know the Lord yet, you haven't trusted in Jesus yet, and you find yourself in a pinch and you say, God, if you get me out of this, if you perform a miracle to deliver me out of this situation, I will trust in you and I will follow you all the days of my life. Now, sometimes God won't do a miracle to bring a person out because He doesn't want their faith based upon the miracle, but upon the Word of God, and He'll work in that person's life a different way. But if God in His grace comes to a person and says, I'm going to get you out of that pickle. You think I'm going to do it in order to get you to put your trust in me. All I'm going to do is save your life here so you can put your faith in me in a proper way a little bit later. So he comes in and he delivers us out of the mess that we found ourselves in. Then what happens? Oh, come, I'm going to follow you. And that person then goes to church two times. And then they go off and they do their own thing again. And the problem with miracles is they kind of wear off until a person finds themselves under their own wisdom back in another mess again, and they make the same deal with God again. If you get me out of this, I'm going to serve you, and I'll be faithful to you, and all of these kind of things. Because miracles alone aren't the best reason for faith in Christ. When Jesus raised Lazarus, his friend Lazarus, from the dead, what was the reaction on the Jewish religious leaders? They all came to faith and, and followed Jesus. That's not. They added Lazarus to their hit list. Lazarus was a walking advertisement to the power 
of God in the life of Christ. And they decided that he was bad for their business. And so now they began to plot not only how to kill Jesus, but also to kill Lazarus. You come to know Christ, God changes your life, makes you into an entirely different person. And we expect everybody to be all excited about that. Some people are excited about that, but a lot of other people aren't excited about us. They can even plot our death because we're bad advertising for what their life is about and what God has pulled us out of that they're still invested in and we make them responsible. God makes them responsible because what God did in us, He will do in anyone. And then I think of Jesus when He spoke the story. It's called the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. But it's not necessarily a parable. Jesus spoke it as a fact as if his audience knew who Lazarus was and the rich man was. And he said there was a man that was a rich man who fared sumptuously every day. means he could eat as much as he wanted. And he ate and he ate, and there was a poor man by the name of Lazarus who found a place under the table of the rich man, and he survived off of the scraps that would fall off of the table. And, And then one day... Both of them died, and both of them went into Hades. And as they went into Hades, the rich man went into the hot side of hell. And then Lazarus, because he was a man of faith, he went into Abraham's bosom. And as there, there's this great gulf that divides the two areas that are in hell there, and The rich man finds himself on the hot side and he speaks to Abraham. He's still used to giving orders to the, to Lazarus. He said, send Lazarus over here with just one drop. I just want one drop of water on his finger to just drop onto my tongue just for a moment's relief. And Abraham said, there is a great gulf between where you are and where we are and no man can pass it. Well, the rich man is thinking fast at this point. And he said, I have several brothers who are still alive. Would you send Lazarus back, raise him from the dead, send him back to warn my brothers not to come to this place? And Abraham said to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets... In other words, if they won't believe the witness of the Word of God, then neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Now, leaving the Jews for a moment, we turn our attention on the Greeks. And we're told by Paul that concerning the Greeks or the Gentiles, that they sought after wisdom. In other words, for the Greek in that time in their search for wisdom, they only wanted to put their faith in something that wowed them intellectually. We know from the Bible that when Paul went to Athens and up on Mars Hill, here were all of these philosophers, here were all of these orators. They came together in the desire to hear someone say something new. They wanted to believe in something that was new, something that had a wow factor uh, to it in terms of man's intelligence. I think about... um, 
a man that used to be a pastor on our staff and is now serving the Lord as a pastor and missionary in another part of the world. There's a certain kind of person that looks at Christianity, rejects it outright as being too common for them, not enough of a wow factor in their mind and in their thinking. And so they look at things and they, here they are, they're raised in the United States of America and they reach adult life or what, early adult life and all. And they, they don't want to be known as a Christian. I mean, there's a bunch of Christians. There's a dime a dozen. Even though our culture is post-Christian, there's still a lot of Christians around. So you can't really show up at a, at a family gathering or a class reunion or to a party or something and say, hey, guess what? I'm a Christian, and it has the kind of wow factor that a certain kind of person wants to have. Because everybody knows a Christian, everybody knows quite a few Christians in our culture. So there's a certain kind of person that wants to show up at a party or class reunion or work or whatever, and somebody says, hey, what are you into? And, I, and they can say, I'm into such and such, and everybody goes, wow. You're the first one of that kind I've ever heard about. Now you tell me, what is, what's that all about? Well, let me tell you, I'm one in a million. And it's a funny thing how the truth can be right under our nose. But this desire to be thought of in a certain way by people for them to think, wow, when they think of me. And the power of that to move people away from the gospel and away from Christianity. Well, my friend, get back to his story, he was raised in a fabulous Christian home, steeped in the Scriptures and the beauty of the Christian life. No hypocrisy in his household and all. It was the real deal. But it was too common by his own admission. And so he went to India to go discover something new and to experience something new. Well, I'll tell you, India is a great place to go if you're, you know, thinking about Christianity or rejecting Christianity for the wow factor or whatever. You go over there and you see what those gods have turned people into. You'll become a Christian fast. If you only know the gospel to turn back to it, which is what people are doing in India today to let people know about something different. But it was a part of his journey. It was a part of him working through his personality and his own path to come to put his faith in Christ and obviously settle that issue very, very thoroughly by virtue of his beautiful life lived for Christ since then and lived in service of the Lord even today, there was an, there's a piece of ancient graffiti that has survived to the present day in Rome, and it depicts a worshiper standing before a crucified figure. And on the cross is this figure that has a body of a man and the head of a jackass. And the inscription written underneath the graffiti is Alexamenos worships his God. 
And that was the way that the intelligentsia among the Greeks viewed the cross. It seemed foolish to them to put their faith in a Savior who could not even save himself from being crucified. And additionally, the cross, the gospel, was foolishness to them because it smote their intellectual pride. The gospel declares the meaning and the purpose of life to mankind in a way that even a child can understand. And it could be received and can be as readily and understood as readily by a child as by a scholar. And all of that is exactly how God wants it to be. Otherwise, Christianity would only be open up open to the intellectually gifted. Many people, especially intellectually gifted people, and they exist, they stumble at the simplicity of the gospel. They stumble at the simplicity of God's plan of salvation. They think it's too simple. The question they never ask is, why is it so simple? And the reason that the gospel is so simple is because it has been birthed out of the infinite intelligence and power of God. And that if a person will but become a Christian and then begin to investigate in earnest with the greatness of their mind, the wisdom of God behind the way that He has chosen to save us, He will but scratch the surface of that wisdom and every quarter inch He digs down into it will leave Him in awe and in a need to worship the God that has provided such a gospel to mankind. Yes, it's simple, but only because God's wisdom and power has made it possible to be simple. Notice what the gospel is to those who trust in Christ. That is for the Christian. In verse 24, it's the power of God for salvation. The gospel doesn't just talk and talk and talk and talk about salvation. It doesn't start a conversation about salvation. It provides us with an actual salvation. You watch the, you, all of you could be home right now watching one of those shows where they've got a panel of three newscasters or newsmakers and then a panel of five and then a panel of seven and they talk and they talk and they talk about this week's problems. And then next week, It'll be the same group, they're together, and they will discuss a whole new group of problems that have come up in the last week. Nothing gets accomplished from week to week to week to week, and there is this idea that we are moving forward somehow on the basis of simply talking about all of these things. 
But the gospel does more than talk about the need of man. The gospel provides us with an actual salvation. And the vindication of the cross is that it actually changes lives. You'll excuse me for getting so excited, but I'm very excited because I can taste my salvation in my mouth. I know what I was and I know what I am today. The vindication of the gospel is that it changes lives, that it makes people who were spiritually dead in a moment into men and women who are spiritually alive. And you are looking at one of those people. I'll tell you, I didn't need a group of people to come together and talk endlessly about my needs or my dilemma or I needed a Savior with the power to forgive me of my sins, give me a new nature, and then lift me out of my sins. And that's the Savior I got in Jesus. And that's the Savior you got in Jesus. And if you don't know Jesus yet, that's the Savior you'll receive into your heart when you receive them into your life today. It isn't just more talk in human history about man's needs. It provides action. The gospel is active. And that's why Paul, who'd been through so many religious discussions as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and yet immersed in Greek culture, given a great mind by God. He listened and listened and listened and listened. And as he listens and sits down with a pen in his hand and the power of the Holy Spirit to write the epistle to the Romans, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first and also unto the Greek. Somebody finally stopped talking about the need and provided a way for people to be saved and to be changed. And that's what the gospel wonderfully does. And all over the world today, there are these endless conversations going on about the condition of mankind, the problems of mankind the needs of mankind, how to solve them, and the talk goes on and on and on and on. When the solution to all of it is sitting right before the whole world, and it is the gospel, testified to by uncountable millions and millions of changed lives, in the last 2,000 years, and untold millions of changed lives that live on this world even today. Again, the Jews, they wanted a sign. Well, there's your sign testifying to the truth about Jesus. 2,000 years of changed lives. Some years ago, we took a, led a trip to Israel, came to the city of Jerusalem, there's a man, very prominent Jewish man, prominent believer in Christ in Israel. And he came to meet us at the hotel. And the gift of hospitality and, and all exercising that, it's taken quite seriously in the Middle East. And he asked if there were any questions that he could answer for us. And somebody raised their hand. They said to him, asked him the question, what can we do as Christians to have an impact for Jesus among the Jewish people. And he said, go to all of the sites and talk of the Lord. 
and worship the Lord and enjoy your relationship with the Lord out loud and out in front of everyone and let that relationship that you have with God provoke us to jealousy. And he's quoting Romans chapter 11. Let them see the reality of what Christ does in a human life. Let them see the reality of your relationship. It's a beautiful, beautiful instruction, and it's a powerful witness and intended to be right into this hour. The gospel comes from a greater wisdom than man possesses. And some of you say, you lost me 15 minutes ago. Listen, it's a gift I have. <laughs> but I tell you how I haven't lost is Christians who are in this environment day in and day out. And they want to know what does God say to a Christian that he puts in that kind of an environment. Verse 24, the gospel comes from a greater wisdom than man possesses. It is the wisdom of God. God who is wiser than any Greek philosopher could ever dream of being. And what's the evidence? The gospel. Because in the gospel, through the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, God has found a way to remain perfectly holy and still save sinful man. In the words of the Apostle Paul, through the gospel, God has found a way to remain just and still be the justifier, the forgiver of sinful man. Because God is perfectly holy and just, every violation of his law, every sin has to be punished. And if he did not punish those who break his laws, if he just casually overlooked sin or became accommodating towards sin or tolerated sin, then he would not and could not be holy and he couldn't be just. So he is a holy God and he is a just God with a desire to save sinful man. What is the solution to that? And the solution to that dilemma, and there is only one solution to that dilemma, is he was able to do it through Jesus' death upon the cross of Calvary. For it is there that he provided a way for Jesus' righteousness to be put to our account, giving us the perfect righteousness that is required for heaven. And yet at the same time, It does not dismiss or ignore the seriousness of our sin. No one can look at Jesus hanging on that cross and ever say, God is soft on sin. God overlooks sin. God is not holy. God is not just. Sin is no big deal to the God of the Bible. No one can ever, ever do that. And it's only by providing mankind with salvation through Jesus' death on the cross that allows God to remain just and be the justifier of sinful man, Romans chapter 3, verse 26. And it is only through a faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of my sins that allows a perfectly holy God to save ungodly sinners and remain just in doing so. That is God's answer to man's greatest need 
from His wisdom. The gospel. We get so used to hearing it. We get so familiar with it. People that reject it or people that haven't received it yet, they hear the offer of salvation made to them and there's no awe related to it. The gospel is so perfect in its wisdom. You could take the greatest mind of the greatest philosopher in human history and give him a thousand lifetimes and he could never come up with it because it was born out of the wisdom of God. This gospel is the means of salvation that pleases God. Verse 21, the end of the verse, that please God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. All that really matters concerning salvation is what pleases God. Who cares what people think? We care, but why do we care? Are you still impressed with man? You're still impressed with yourself, your own power, your own wisdom. You are not old yet. The only person who remains in awe of the wisdom and the power of man is a person who is still very young. Or they've closed off their eyes and their ears and their thinking. Look at what the wisdom of man has produced in the world all around us. A world that is about to cave in on us. That's the wisdom of man. Who can be impressed with the wisdom and the power of man given the evidence that is all around us on a national level, an individual level, an international level? Who cares what people think? One second after every single one of us dies, all we will care about is what pleases God and what salvation pleases God. And no one will care one bit about what the religious leaders of this world or the intelligentsia of this world think about anything. All that will matter is what pleases God and what salvation pleases God. We'll close our Bible study on the subject in the same way that the Spirit did in verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The gospel is born out of a wisdom and a power that is far greater than man's. And for those of us who know the Lord and we love the Lord, we need to understand from this passage that God, out of His own infinite power and wisdom, has chosen to provide mankind with salvation through faith in the death and the burial and the resurrection of His Son. That is how He has chosen to save us.
Don't ever apologize for it. God never apologizes for it. His reputation is at stake, not just ours. And he never apologizes for his gospel. And he is never ashamed of his gospel in any environment. Don't ever be intimidated by the worldly wise, those who have tremendous worldly wisdom, carnal wisdom, but have no spiritual discernment. Jesus wasn't intimidated by them. He sent the 70 disciples out into Israel to preach the gospel and prepare the way for his journey. They came back. He gave them power to preach the gospel and to heal and to cleanse lepers. And they came back and they said, we have power over the devil. We can cast the devil out of people. And Jesus said to them, listen, I saw Satan cast down from heaven. Don't rejoice in the fact that you can push demons around. Rejoice in the fact that your name is written in the book of life. And then we're told in that same passage, in that very hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit and he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. If you sit here this morning and you are not yet a Christian, haven't yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, there's an old saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You can't know what's in the pudding until you eat the pudding. There's an Old Testament version of that, and that is taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And as you put your faith and your trust in Jesus as your Savior this morning, you will immediately begin to experience the infinite wisdom and power of God at work in your life. A quick show of hands. How many people in this room can testify to God's wisdom and power in our lives? Just a quick show of hands. And we give them praise for that. We're miracles. We know that we're miracles. And what God has done in us, He will do in you. The alternative is to perish. And you don't want that because it's unnecessary. And God doesn't want that. That's why he's provided his son. There are going to be pastors and other men and women up in front immediately after our service. They'd love to pray with you to begin a relationship with God through his son. The relationship that you've been created for. The relationship without which nothing in life will make sense. Let's stand together and we'll pray. From the bottom of our hearts, Father, thank you for the greatness of your wisdom and your power demonstrated in the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to spend our lives in endless 
conversations that never become anything more than just words and words and words and words but can't change a life or a nation or a world. And Lord, we pray that you use this time that we have spent in your word today to inoculate us forever against ever being intimidated in any environment because we have trusted in your gospel and proclaim it to be the only hope for mankind. And we ask this of you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.